most of you don't know who I am. Uh, just so you know, I do media. And so most people know me uh, by voice. And if you're one of those and uh, you have wondered what I look like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, I was in St. Louis not too long ago and somebody came to one of my staff people and said, I had to come tonight. And she said, well, I'm glad you did. And uh, said, I had to see what he looked like. And the staff person said, well, she said, well, I was expecting the Marlboro man and I was greatly disappointed. <laughs> And then I was in California one time, this young man, after I'd spoken for this conference, came up and he said, Dr. Brown, you're old. And then he turned and walked off the stage. And when he got to the edge of the stage, he turned back and, I, and he said, I mean, you're really old. <laughs> you, um, thank you for inviting me. This has been an in and out, touch here and there, listen a little bit, talk a little bit time, and I've loved it. You guys smell like Jesus, and I'm an old cynical preacher, and I have to see the real thing on occasion to keep from being a Buddhist. <laughs> that, that would be my religion of choice. I mean, the Buddha's always smiling, and it's obvious they don't have a diet program. Uh, uh, but you're the real deal. Uh, what's happening here uh, is the soft sound of sandaled feet. So thank you for letting me be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, we're here not because we're good or smart or faithful or obedient, but because we're yours. You know every person in this place. The demons that come in the middle of the night, the, the sins we can't shake, the secrets we can't share, the loneliness the fear, come yourself to this place. Father, forgive the one who teaches his sins because there are many. We would see Jesus and him only. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You ought to meet my son-in-law. Uh, He's a tenured professor at a university in composition, is one of the rising young composers in America. Several symphonies and ensembles have played his stuff, but he is, after all, my son-in-law. Somebody has said, when you give your daughter away, it's like giving a grand Stradivarius to a gorilla. And uh, I love him, but uh, it was still hard to do that. In the early days of their marriage, and this had been a long time ago, we would often debate. I think it was kind of a father-in-law, son-in-law kind of debate, uh, staking out territory, and we got to discussing music. 
And I was sure there ought to be some kind of standard of beauty uh, for music. And he said, no, there isn't. He said, music is made and believed and accepted and measured in the eye of the musician. And whether it's the Ninth Symphony or whether it's somebody beating on a garbage can top, it's the same. Now that drove me nuts, and at that time I was uh, teaching a course at the seminary with Dr. Reggie Kidd on worship. By the way, Reggie Kidd uh, has written maybe the best book on worship ever written. It's called With One Voice, and how the people of God worship through the voices of Bach and the Blues Brothers and Bubba. But I went to Reggie, and I, he's my best friend in the seminary, and I, I explained to him my problem, thinking he would give me a standard that I could use so I could win the debate with my son-in-law. He said, Steve, he's right. Deal with it. And I said, thanks a lot. And then he said something that has informed me ever since he said it. He said, if you have a stable meta-narrative, everything is permissible. If you don't have a stable meta-narrative, everything is dangerous. <laughs> this past week, I've been reading Chesterton's novel, uh, Man Alive. If you haven't read that, you... Uh, you uh, ought to read it. The leading character's name is Innocent Jones, I think, and he's accused of rape. And there's a professor who's an existentialist who believes that life is meaningless, and he points a gun at his head and almost shoots him. He's seen as a bigamist, a thief, and it goes on and on, and they have his trial. And they say that it's the most fun book that Chesterton ever wrote because he's found innocent. And all of the things he's accused of are simply places where he's breaking man's laws, the things that don't matter. In other words, Innocent Jones had a stable meta-narrative. Somebody in a review said that he accepted the laws of God so he could ignore the laws of men. In other words, he had a stable meta-narrative. And do you know why he had a stable meta-narrative? He had a stable meta-narrative because he had a stable God. We, and you know this, so I'm preaching to the pew, our meta-narrative includes grace and mercy and forgiveness and love, and acceptance, and kindness, and compassion. But the meta-narrative goes way back before that, and it starts with God. Let me read, and I could have, I could have picked a lot of scripture, but let me, 
Let me read a couple of texts to you, and then we'll talk about it. The first is in the 11th chapter of Romans, where Paul has just said some things that seem pretty obtuse, pretty crazy. Nobody really understands what he was saying exactly, not even John Murray. And then at the end, he says something that is so beautiful, and it is this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that he shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. A sovereign God. Let me read to you from a psalm, and as I said, I could have picked a thousand different places in Scripture, because this is, after all, our stable meta-narrative built on a stable, sovereign, and immutable God. Listen to what the psalmist says, and this is the 102nd Psalm. Psalmist says, of old you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, all of them will grow old like a garment, like a cloak, you will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. And of course, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Matt, when he asked me to do this, said for me to talk about the future of grace. I have no idea about the future of grace. <laughs> I've been doing this longer than most of you have been alive, and I have seen some rapid social change that leaves an old guy shaking. Things that I thought would happen never did. And things that I thought would never happen have happened. You want to read a good two-volume uh, biography, read Margaret Thatcher's two volumes of her story and her as the Iron Lady work in, uh, in Britain. The first volume, she describes her administration as pitching a pup tent on the side of a hill in the middle of a landslide. <laughs> that's kind of the way, that's the kind of the way it feels to me right now. So I don't know in terms of the future of grace what exactly is going to happen. Whatever you think God is doing in your life right now, he probably isn't. <laughs> 
His ways are circuitous. And he cares more about you than what you do. I'm not what I thought I would be. I'm not as good as I thought I would be by now. And I've gone to places I thought I'd never go and talked to people I thought I'd never talk to and hugged people that ought not be hugged and done things that preachers ought not do. So I don't, I don't know about the future of grace, but if you, if you check in Joshua 4, and you know the story when God tells Joshua to get a bunch of rocks out of the river and put them on a bank, and then when, when your children say, what in the world are those rocks? You tell them about me. You tell them what I did for you. You tell them how I loved you. You tell them how I led you. Charles Baird is a famous American historian. He's dead now. And shortly before his death, somebody asked him what he had learned from all of the years of study of history. He said, I've learned four things. The first thing that I learned is that the wheels of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. I've learned secondly that those whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. Thirdly, I've learned that the bee fertilizes the flower from which it robs. And finally, I've learned that when it gets dark enough, you can see the stars. I love that quote. I memorized it a long time ago. Because it's good to look to the past and determine about the future. But if you're a Christian and you worship a sovereign and immutable God, those rocks are something else. So I thought, even though I don't know the details, and you don't either, we're living in a pup tent in a landslide on a hillside. There's some things you can count on that won't change at all. It's a part of our meta-narrative, and you know them, but we need to be reminded more than we need to be taught. And the first is, because of an immutable and sovereign God, he's not fickle about his love. For God so loved the world. First John, God isn't loving. He is love forever without change, without distraction. I'm a Calvinist, reformed. I can repeat the Westminster Confession of Faith backwards. We Calvinists have a, an acrostic in the form of a flower. It's a tulip and it represents the five points of Calvinism. And there's an old joke about people who aren't Calvinists, Arminians and Wesleyans and others, and their flower is a daisy. 
where you pick the pebbles, pebbles off one after another, saying, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. <laughs> That's not fair, by the way. And actually, it's really not funny, because most of us live that way. Karen Horney at Harvard used to call it mother love and father love, but we all know what she meant. If we do it right, if we're nice, if we fulfill the expectations, then we'll be loved. And if we don't, we won't. And the problem in the church is that we're always putting kickers to it. I think it's the way we protect our ecclesiastical power. But there's always a kicker. You have no idea how many letters I get of people who are really angry at me. They think I'm antinomian. They think I'm encouraging sin. I didn't have to encourage sin. People were doing fine with that before I came along. And I don't, I don't do any of that. The kickers are always there. Yeah, yeah, Jesus loves you, but don't let it go to your head. <laughs> After all of his love for you, it looks like you could. Aren't you grateful for his love and you live like that, the kickers? Awful. They're from the pit of hell and they smell like smoke. I have a friend uh, who became concerned about the divisions and the hatred in Northern Ireland. I was in Belfast two or three years ago for a week of services for the churches that invited me, and I listened to the stories, and they were horrible, and they were scary. And my friend, who's a Roman Catholic, his business in the States was billboards, and he didn't know what he could do to make a difference in Northern Ireland, so he bought billboards all over the country. And you know what he put on the billboards? This is so good, I can hardly wait to tell you. <laughs> he put on the billboards, I love you. Is that okay? Jesus. I have your number. I've been doing this a long, long time. And I know that you got secrets. You got places that are dark in your life. Listen to me. I don't care what your sexual orientation is. Jesus said, I love you. Is that okay? I don't care who you're sleeping with or what you're drinking or smoking. Jesus says, I love you. Is that okay? I don't care the people you've hurt, the lust that eats you alive, the grief that rips your heart out. Jesus says, I love you. Is that okay?
You can count on that. I thought you needed to be reminded. I'll tell you something else that won't change. Being forgiven won't change. You know Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I got an email last week from a guy who said, I read beyond that and the kicker was there and it wasn't. If you've read that and you know the context, you know that Paul says that the flesh brings death and the spirit brings life. So set your mind on the spirit, not on the flesh. And immediately Americans... Christians think of sex. <laughs> I mean, it's natural. And then we think of debauchery and greed. and bad. That's not what Paul is saying. Read his confession in Romans 7 and read what he says about the law in Romans 8 after there is now, therefore, no condemnation. And he's saying just the opposite. Doing it by the flesh is being religious. Doing it by the flesh is reading your Bible and praying a lot and thinking God will love you if you'll do it enough and long enough. And it's a lie. There is now, therefore, no... Con I have a friend, one of my best friends. Uh, his name's Jerry Perrys. And when he said this to me, I've thought about it ever since. He said, hey, Steve, you will run out of sin before God runs out of grace. Is that good? You know, it almost makes this old Presbyterian speak in tongues and dance. <laughs> and, and we don't do either one very well. <laughs> you, know, you know what I would have liked to have done? I would like to have been at the party that was thrown for the prodigal son. I saw a cartoon the other day and it showed the father and the prodigal kneeling in front of him and the caption said, all right, son, but this is the fourth time in three months that we've killed the fatted calf. <laughs> if I... If I, you know, it would be a great party. I'm sure they had barbecue. You know, that's what the fatted calf is, <laughs> if it's done right. And uh, I'd go out and, you know, during the break in the band, for the band, I'd go out and stand on the back porch of the barn, smoke my pipe, and maybe the young man would come out. And I'd look, and he'd say, uh, Mr., your pipe tobacco smells good. And I said, because it's expensive. It is good. I said, son, do you know how much your father loves you? And he would say, you have no idea. And I would say to him, would you mind an old guy giving you some advice? He said, no, I'd listen. And I would say, um, it's a great party. But tomorrow you've got to go back in the fields and it's going to be hot as hell. And you're going to build calluses back on your hands. It's going to be harder. And not only that, you're going to go back to the far country. And he would say, oh no, never, I'm not. 
I said, listen to me. Yes, you are. You won't stay as long as you did. But you're going to go. And listen to the old guy. When you get in the far country, don't forget the taste of the wine and the sound of the music. I'm forgiven. And Jesus likes me. Oh, do, you, do you know what you would do if you knew Jesus was coming back next Tuesday? You'd go to church on Sunday, that's for sure. <laughs> and most of you would start fasting and confessing your sins and praying and doing everything, asking forgiveness from everybody. You know what I do? I get drunk. <laughs> I'm a teetotaler, man. You ought to be drunk once before Jesus comes back. <laughs> and, and, and do you know what else I do? I'd buy a Mercedes. I, I'm so tired of my Honda. It's got 250,000 miles on it. And it's just, I'd, I like to have a new car and a Mercedes. And if I didn't have to pay off the payments, I'd go get one. I'd run up the credit cards. And I have some enemies I'd go around and make obscene gestures at. You can't, you can't do that if you're a preacher you, without losing your job. But if Jesus was coming back next week, I could do all of that. And the reason some of you are shocked and I'm so pleased <laughs> is because Jesus likes me better than he likes you. <laughs> That'll never change. I'm forgiven. I can't believe that. You know, I have sometimes preached my best sermons when I was sinning in my worst ways. And I would say, Lord, what's that about? And he would say, don't take advantage of it. But I wanted to remind you. Something else not going to change. Because of our meta-narrative, because of an immutable and sovereign God, he will never leave you in the dark. What's it, the Allstate commercial when they hit the app on their phone, the Allstate guy just emerges right there to help them with their accident? You know, we have the name of Jesus. And uh, my friend that I quoted earlier, Jerry Perry, he's a pastor of an African-American church, and they taught me a song, at the name of Jesus, every chain is broken. Some of you know I teach in seminary, not much anymore, but because I am disliked in so many quarters, when seminary students get out, I say, look, you can use my name if you want to, but take some advice. When you're with a pulpit committee, bring my name up. If they grin, you tell them I'm your best friend. If they wince, you tell them I was your professor, but you didn't like me very much. <laughs> and I've gotten calls from all over the country from former students who say, I thought you were kidding. 
the name of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. Hebrews 14, I will not leave you or forsake you ever. That's what the book, we're in my church where I'm a member, we're, I'm in a small group. It's the first time I've ever done that. When I join a small group, I screw it up. So I can't do that. I can't be in leadership because people think I know more than I do and I could cause some serious damage. But my wife and I decided to be a part of this small group. And she said, honey, listen to me. If you're, you, you will go in and intimidate people and so you gotta shut up and not say a word. And you'd be so proud of me. <laughs> in the face of heresy, I have to remain silent. <laughs> I really have. I've done. I'm, it took them six months to get over, and now the, they they think of me as normal. And it's, and we're stu- at any rate that's ancillary. But we're studying Hosea, and the teacher is really emphasizing the blood and guts of Hosea. God's going to cut your head off, and you're in trouble. But he skips over the eleventh chapter of Hosea and the story. Good Lord, Hosea married a whore. And God told him to. And then, and, and listen, I'm a preacher. You don't make a prostitute the first lady of the manse. I mean, he brought her back into the synagogue and they got over it and decided they were going to do a book on her testimony. And then she goes back into the far country. <laughs> and Hosea said, well, I got biblical reason for divorce. I'm not, I don't have to do that anymore. And God said, I got a job for you to do. You go find her. You bring her back. You bring her home. That's an immutable, sovereign God. And God said, Jose, I'm that way with my people. I'll never leave them. I'll never forsake them. And when they go into the park, far country, I'll go there too. And then there's There's one other thing, and I'm finished. Because of our stable meta-narrative, a sovereign God, immutable, you're going to get better. (laughs) You know, it's Philippians 1.6, where it says that what God starts, he finishes, and the fact that he starts it means he's going to finish it. That means you're going to get better. And you can't stop it. You can't derail it. You can't slow it down. So quit worrying about it. The reason Christians are so bad is they're trying too much to be good. Let it go and run to Jesus and forget about all of that stuff. What God begins, he will bring to conclusion. People say, Steve, you're authentic. No, I'm not. I'm not going to share with you some stuff, but I'm going to pretend I am so you think I do. (laughs) But, and this isn't an authentic statement, it's just a true, and I struggle with this stuff. I really do. I can be good, I just can't be good long enough. There's stuff in me that would absolutely shock you. But let me 
Let me tell you something that's true about me. You never met a man in your life who wants to please God more than I do. And I think you're the same way. But don't go weird on it. Don't obsess on it, because he's promised. It's a part of our meta-narrative. It's why we can dance and sing. It's why you can have a mockingbird conference and laugh so easily, because you're going to get better. And you can't help it. That's what happens when you have a stable meta-narrative. Oh, there's one other thing. I was on the leadership committee of a Washington for Jesus rally that happened, I'll bet, 20, maybe 25 years ago in Washington. We had hundreds of thousands of Christians uh, in Washington just to proclaim Jesus. That was it. And those of us in leadership were kind of worried because we got some weird people in our family. I mean, some really weird people, and we didn't know what was going to happen. So we're having a breakfast before the rally started, and there was a black, I wish I could remember his name, because I loved him. It was an African-American bishop there, and he stood up, and we're all chitting and chatting around these tables with breakfast, and he said, I got a message from Jesus. And boy, did we get quiet, because we, that's what we needed. And uh, he said, Jesus said for me to tell you that if you Christians get over your fear, you're going to be dangerous. I like that. The things I've taught you this evening or reminded you about make you dangerous. You don't have anything to lose. You don't have anything to prove. You don't have to work to be accepted. You don't have to pretend to be something you're not. And that scares pagans to death. That's what a witness is. And you can't help it. There was a, and I'm finished with this. There was a television program years ago called Firing Line. And it was by William Buckley, who was the founder of National Review magazine. And he would have all kinds of guests. And right after Malcolm Muggeridge's, and I loved him, uh, conversion, then wrote Jesus Rediscovered, um, he had Muggeridge on his program, and they were discussing Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And Buckley said to Muggeridge this, he said, do you, you think that the world will ever produce another Solzhenitsyn? This is what Muggridge said. If the world were encased in concrete, there would be a crack. And out of the crack would grow a flower. And out of the flower, the voice of Solzhenitsyn. To use his metaphor, if the world were encased in concrete, there would be a crack, and out of the crack would grow a flower, and out of the flower, the voice of the terrible meek.
the people of God. You think about that. Amen.